If you would turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 11, and uh, you're going to see throughout the presentation, uh, the PowerPoint today, that I've got some spots that are underlined. That's because I usually have handouts for the teens. They all have handouts today because I gave it to them. You don't, and I'm sorry, but I only printed enough for teens to start with, so that's what we're getting, <laughs> and everyone else will just have to imagine filling in a handout. All right. If you really want one, I, I think I've got about four that people could fight over up here, but I think... Uh, Hopefully this will be helpful. And then David, do you mind turning me up just a little bit? All right, so Mark chapter 11. I trust you're there now. Uh, let's go ahead and read this. This is the passage that corresponds to today, the triumphal entry where Christ enters in to the city of Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday. So Mark 11, hopefully you're there now. Uh, let's go ahead and read this. I want you to notice as we do just how Mark kind of ramps up the electricity of this passage as you get closer and closer to Jerusalem. So notice he's just, his, his pacing gets quicker. He's describing more. He's talking about sights and sounds and smells, and he's trying to bring you into the text. All right, Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage at Beth, in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we work through this text together. God, as we enter in on Easter, this season that has always been a special time for your people, we reflect not merely on a Messiah who is a good example for us or provides us a way to follow, a path to follow. We, we reflect on a Savior who died for us. Today, in this public pronouncement of him as Messiah, you have a lesson for us, for the kind of reception that Jesus deserves. I pray that our reception would not merely be verbal, it would not merely be visible on the outside, but that our reception would be heart deep, that we would accept the Messiah of the Bible, and so bow to him and worship together today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is a passage, like I mentioned already, that is full of electricity. And in part, it's because of everything that's been leading up to this text. We worked our way through the book of Mark not too long ago, so maybe you remember some of the details of this passage, but I'll try to draw them to mind as we go. The first thing to mention, though, and I'm going to be clicking through, if you don't mind up here, I made these slides in Keynote and put them over to PowerPoint, so if there's any problem, it's Windows' fault. All right, so I apologize for that. All right, they are on their way to Jerusalem. In fact, if you look just a little bit earlier in chapter 10, you'll find in verse 32 that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking 
ahead of them. That word is actually charging. Jesus is like charging in a battle formation ahead of them on his way to Jerusalem. Luke talks about this as Jesus setting his face like a flint to to Jerusalem. Jesus is marching ahead. We figure out that right before here, then they come to Jericho. Verse 46 tells us that. And as they come into Jericho, he's met immediately with a problem of a blind man named Bartimaeus. Now, you may not know this because we're not familiar as much with the geography of this area, and I'll show you a map in a second that I think will help. But Mark is literally listing off the villages that you'd be going through to get to Jerusalem. It'd be like if I said, they came to North Ogden, then they went over the divide. You can almost picture it in your mind, and that's what Mark is doing. They're walking up the hill through Jericho onto Jerusalem, and that's his final destination. While he's in Jericho, though, he heals a blind man, very publicly so. This is likely also because Mark puts this triumphal entry directly after John 11, right around the time where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. People come out from Jerusalem. So here's Jesus coming, and he's healing blind people. We find that likely Zacchaeus is also around the same time period, taking a man who was ostracized by his own wrong deeds and turning him into a convert who now went and told everyone what Jesus was doing. Then he comes up to Bethany, likely, and raises Lazarus from the dead. And now he's entering into Jerusalem. This is what precedes this passage. And the crowds now, then, are flooding into Jerusalem. They're doing it this week because that's required by law. Three times a year, all the men in in Israel were required to go up to Jerusalem. This is one of those times, as Deuteronomy 16 tells us. They're required by law to be here, and they're anticipating the kingdom of God. In fact, so heavy was their anticipation that Luke tells us that the crowds were ready to crown Jesus as king right then. Jesus actually stops the crowds in Luke 19 and tells them a parable of a man who went to a faraway country to receive a kingdom and then came back. And he told them that, it says in Luke 19, so that they would understand that his kingdom was not yet coming in its full power. So the crowds are kind of buzzing with excitement because they see this man fulfilling everything they've anticipated about with the Messiah. Several years ago, I think I've told this story before, Megan and I went to Boise, Idaho. And uh, we were there for passing through, and we stopped by a little coffee shop, and we were drinking mediocre Idaho coffee. And as we looked out the window, we saw a man in a full, skin-tight, red and blue costume with spider webs all over it. And that's all I have to say for you to know, oh, well, here's a man impersonating Spider-Man. In fact, he was like weirdly climbing on the walls, and we were like, our daughter Ella was there. She was the only, I think maybe Nora was really tiny. We like covered Ella's eyes. Don't look at this. This is weird. All right, but we all knew exactly what he was doing, right? He was, he was actually acting out exactly what you'd expect to see of a man who was trying to pretend to be Spider-Man. Now, that cultural image is super easy for us to connect with, and it would have been just that plain and obvious that Jesus is actually saying, I'm the Messiah. Who is supposed to heal blind people? Only the Messiah. Who's supposed to raise the dead? Only the Messiah. So as he starts encroaching on Jerusalem, they're seeing him step by step publicly declaring, I am the Messiah. And this is made all the more clear and obvious because Mark has, for his entire book so far, every time Jesus does something publicly and people want to go tell everyone else about it, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone. Go home. He's constantly quieting people for the sake of furthering his ministry. But now Jesus isn't doing that. 
Instead, Jesus is the one saying, I want you to go, and I want you to proclaim who I am. We're going to see that as we head through this. So this is kind of the buzz, the excitement of what's happening right as we lead up to the text in Mark chapter 11. Now, I have a little map because for me, these visuals help. So hopefully they help you too. All right, here is kind of the the area of Israel. Down here is the Dead Sea. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry, if you can see my shaky hand, I shoveled a lot of snow, all right? That's probably the problem here. All right, right up top there, um, Jesus lived in Capernaum as kind of his home base, the very top of that uh, little Sea of Galilee. And so you can see that they had two options. He could either come over all these mountains where Samaria was, and that's a possibility, or they could go right down the Jordan Valley Rift. And that's what most people did because you didn't have to climb hills constantly. There was also possibly some racism against the Samaritans, but it was very common for people from that area just to take that single road all the way down. There's actually another path if you came all the way out here that's called the King's Way, but not many people took that. Long story. All right. So here we go. You can see now I've got this little animation. Can everyone say ooh just for a second? There, there you go. All right. And you can see now they come up past Jericho into Jerusalem. Now, the positioning of this is important because Mark's going to describe where he's coming from, and this has messianic tie-ins as well. Jesus is coming from this area for a reason. In fact, this is the view they would have seen. Obviously, this is a modern view, but the same kind of angle that they would have seen as they crested the Mount of Olives. This sat some 300 feet over the city of Jerusalem, and you can see that standing on the Mount of Olives, what do you see but the entire Temple Mount? In fact, this side of the Temple Mount, the gate right here is called um, the Golden Gate, I think or the gate of the sun. Now, I can't remember. I think it's the golden gate. And the reason is, is because when the sun would rise, it would hit that, and it would illuminate. And it was covered in gold, laden in gold. This is where the Messiah was supposed to enter. And this is where Jesus enters in this text. There is something else curious, though. And if I were to flip this around, maybe first before I do, do you see on the base of the Mount of Olives, kind of at your feet in this picture, uh, do you see something curious? I'm going to show you another picture, too. Does anybody have a guess at what all these white things are right here. They're little stones. Anybody have a guess? I heard maybe something. Did I hear graves? Did somebody say that? Yeah. They're graves. Yeah, it's a huge graveyard. And this is today, a modern view. And that's because today, as as then, people anticipated the Messiah would come back to this location. So everybody wanted to be buried here. In fact, Absalom's tomb I don't know if you can see it. There's like a big tower right there. That's supposedly Absalom's tomb. This is where David sets him. He's going to be ready for the Messiah when the Messiah comes. Jesus comes to the location of the Messiah on the donkey of a Messiah, that we'll look at in a second, to the cries of Messiah, the cries of Hosanna, God save us. And in fact, we have passages like Zechariah 14 that say, on this day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. This is what people expected. And Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, we will rise again, and we want to be in that location. So Jesus is hitting all of these messianic expectations so that people will recognize what he's been hiding all along so that he could further his ministry. I am the Messiah. This is on his final entrance into this text. So let's now examine our text before us here. Jesus, first of all, draws near to Jerusalem. Jesus draws near to Jerusalem. Mark 11, verse 1, describes it like this. When they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Bethpage is between Bethany and Jerusalem, and John chapter 11 tells us Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, 
this whole region is so smashed together. It's kind of like when people say they're from like Ogden area. There's not like a stop to Ogden. It just kind of is one bleeding city all the way down to Salt Lake. That's kind of this region. And so Jesus stays likely at Bethany. This is likely when he raised Lazarus. So, like I said, this anticipation for a Messiah is building. And then he enters in at the Mount of Olives. This is, like I just mentioned, the entrance for the Messiah. It's where everybody expected the Messiah to come. We have passages like Ezekiel 11, verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. What mountain is that? It's the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus goes. Or we have passages like Ezekiel 43 that say, The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. You can hear the sound of Jesus entering the city. And the earth shone with his glory, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. This is Jesus' gate. This is where he comes. This is the entrance, though, of not an ordinary man. This is the entrance of a king. And this is something that Mark takes time to explain to us. He slows the story down here just to make sure we understand this is not a normal entrance. And what might seem like an odd story to us of this, this fool and this coat, colt and all this is not odd at all to Mark's original readers or his audience because Jesus enters like a king. He simply says this, find and, oh, I'm behind, sorry. Uh, find and bring me a colt. Oh, no, I, I didn't. I, I skipped past it. All right, Mark, uh, Zechariah 9.9. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do when he came in. This is the passage about the Messiah. And it's told to the city itself, rejoice Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. How is the king supposed to come? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. This is how he was supposed to king, uh, how he's supposed to enter. This is fulfilling to the letter the messianic expectations of the people of of that day. They were waiting for a king just like this to enter in on a donkey. Zechariah 9 tells us. Jesus simply says to find and bring him a colt. Now, this is described as a colt that has never been sat on. That was a phrase that we used of animals for sacrifice in the book of Numbers. Or this was also described of God's prophet, Samuel. When he was declared as God's prophet, this was how it was done, uh, on a colt. And then Jesus says, declare my right to any who would ask. You can imagine if Jesus asked you to go steal someone's donkey, you would say, but what if Jesus anticipates that? And he actually says, if someone says something to you, here's what I want you to tell them. Notice what Jesus says. He says, if anyone says anything to you, you say, verse 3, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. In other words, I'll return it right back to you. I'm borrowing it. I'm not stealing it. And it's the Lord who's asking for it. Jesus then is declaring to the disciples, to anyone who would ask, I am the Lord. He's declaring it like a king would. And we figure out that this is exactly what happens. They go, somebody asks them, what are you doing? And the book of Luke actually tells us that the somebody is the owners. They ask, what are you doing? And they tell them exactly what Jesus said. And Notice the parallel between verse 2 and verse 4. Go into the village in front of you. Verse 4, they went away. And it says, immediately, you will enter and find a colt tied. Verse 4, they found a colt tied. Mark's even paralleling the language here to show you, this is what a king does. He comes in and he says, I need your colt. And you say, yes, sir. This is what the king does. And this is how Jesus enters. He enters in on this colt like a king. Even the way he 
procures this cult is that same way. And Jesus' words prove true, as I've already mentioned. Jesus' words prove true. The owners submit to the king. Like I mentioned, Luke 19 tells us it's the actual owners who question the disciples. What are you doing taking away my cult? This is exactly what they say. Now, all this preparation is build up to the entrance of the Messiah. And I'm going to pick up the pace here because there's kind of this rapid-fire nature of the way Mark goes through this, and it's for a reason because we know the end of the story. So I want you to keep the end of the story in mind, what these same crowds are going to do when you're hearing them do what they're about to do now, when you're seeing them do what they're about to do now. So Jesus enters in on this cult. Now, entering in on the cult, like I already mentioned, fulfills these messianic expectations, but it does so in a really deeply historical way. When Judah, um, the, the tribe from which Jesus descends, was declared to be the one that the Messiah came through, here is what his father said to him in Genesis chapter 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Do you hear there Jesus saying, give me your colt, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the Uh, the blood of grapes. This is likely referencing the judgment Jesus will one day bring. But at this point, you can see already Jesus is tying in not just to like late Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah, but all the way back to um, Judah himself, to the, the tribe of Judah where he comes from. Jesus now enters into the city. We find in verse seven, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. He brings him a colt. This is exactly how it was for Solomon. You might remember that King David had to very quickly grab Solomon and anoint him as king when there was disruption in his own family line, in his own kingly line. And when he does that, the way he declares, this is the king, is he puts him on his own colt. This was historically how kings were presented to the people. So Jesus is coming as the conquering king, as the Messiah like we've already looked at. And he comes on garments of others like King Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. He comes and they spread their garments. These wouldn't be like their shirts. They'd be more like their outer cloaks. And he would only do this for a king, but they spread it out on the donkey and on the the road before him. And they spread out palm branches in front of him like he's a victor. Now this, again, would be a very common cultural thing that they would have understood. About 150 years before this time period, you may have heard the name Judas Maccabees. Maybe you've uh, heard of that section in the Apocrypha. We figure out in 1 Maccabees chapter 13 that this Jewish priestly line throws off um, the rulers. And when they enter in the city after doing this, what do people do? They chop off palm branches and they throw it out in front of them. In fact, in John 12, we find Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah. This was a common, regular festival. It's still celebrated today. And this is one of the signs of Hanukkah. They would actually throw down these branches as an homage to Judas Maccabeus riding in as a victor, as a conquering victor. Jesus rides in on those same palm branches. People are saying, you're the Messiah. So you see, for us, these are just maybe curious things about the season, but for them, they're tying it into their history and saying, you're like King Solomon. You're like King Jehu. You're like the conquering Maccabeans. You're the Messiah. If you don't see this just from what they say, listen to how they talk about Jesus, or what they do, listen to how they talk about Jesus. They proclaim his identity. And what we figure out is in Luke 19, the disciples are shouting this out, but 
In John and here, we figure out the whole crowds are shouting this out. Notice what they say. They spread their cloaks on the road, verse 8. Others spread leafy branches. They had cut from the fields. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This proclamation, this word Hosanna, is the word, save us. That's what it means. Save us now. Psalm 118 describes this as a divine cry. And this is, in fact, what they do as well. In fact, if you look down at verse 10, they say, Hosanna in the highest. That in the highest is a little idiom because they didn't like to say the name of God out of reverence. So when they would talk about God, they would say, in the highest. Or sometimes they would say um, something about the heavens. And that was a shorthand for God himself. What they're saying is, Hosanna, God. Save us now, God. This is what they're saying to the Messiah as he enters in. Both his disciples and the crowds are crying this out. And notice in verse 9, it's not just that there are some who are with him. It's that there's some who are coming out before in other Gospels, because all four Gospels recount this. It's one of only three stories that all four Gospels recount. Other Gospels tell us that it's people streaming out of the city to come meet him, and people coming up from Jericho behind him. You can just almost hear, you can see the dust being kicked up as everyone is running to this Messiah figure. He's entering on the east side. He's just raised a man. He's just healed the blind. This is Messiah. Save us now. And this is what Mark wants us to picture. But remember how hollow these cries are. Because it's these same crowds that in just a moment are going to cry what? Crucify him, right? That's curious, and we need to keep that in mind. And notice that they describe this for one more messianic connection as David's son. Who is David's son? Messiah. That's David's son. That's what it means for David to have this long-lasting son who will come and rule forever. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. We're here. We're seeing it with our own eyes. For hundreds of years, people have waited for this moment, and we're here. There's no doubt in the crowd's eyes. They're, they're seeing this king come. Now, before we move on, it's important for us to pause after the flurry of activity here and just say, what are they expecting? How do you go from here to in one week's time turning on this one and yelling, crucify him? What are they expecting of this Messiah? All right, so... Now let's break from my monologue, and I'm going to ask that as a real question. What are they expecting Jesus to do? What do they want him to do when he enters the city? Remember who they're under, the Romans? So what do they want him to do? Yeah, they want him to be the political king, to take over, to throw off the Romans. They want finally to be their, their own people again which they only had for about 70 years under the Maccabeans, and then they fought amongst themselves so much that Herod ended up uh, receiving a kingdom. It's, it's a long story. But they, they haven't had much time since, since uh, they were taken into captivity by first the Assyrians, the northern tribes, and then the Babylonians. Several hundred years before this, they've only had about 70 years of independence. They've always been under the thumb of some ruler, the Persians, then the Greeks. Maccabeans threw it off for 70 years, then now they're under the Romans again. They've never had this kind of independence, and the Messiah they want is a Messiah who will do exactly that. But what is Jesus coming to do? He's saving them. That's what they're asking. But he's not saving them from the Romans. 
Who is Jesus saving them from? All right, from, from their sin, from their deepest problems. So if you, if you pull that crowd and say, hey, pause everyone, stop yelling. Okay, everyone, I want to know what is your biggest problem right now? How, what percentage of that crowd do you think is yelling, the Romans, just about all of them. But if you ask Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah coming in, what is their biggest problem? Jesus says, it's their sin. It's their position with God. It's the wrath of God already on its way. And isn't this how people treat the Messiah today? I mean, most people have no problem at all allowing God into their lives for certain things. God, I have a really hard time right now at work. God, I have financial needs. I have relational struggles. I have mental health struggles. I need your help for all these kinds of things. And does God help us with those? Even unbelievers with those? Yes, all the time God is showing his grace towards us. But it's as soon as God turns his spotlight onto the problem of our sin that we say, no, crucify him. And that's exactly what the crowds are about to do. In other words, this verbal and visual demonstration of accepting the Messiah is undercut by their heart's acceptance of him. Because they're only willing to accept a Messiah of their own making. Isn't that true? Isn't that true for us too? I mean, hopefully everyone here would profess to be a born-again Christian. To my knowledge, we do. But don't we also kind of do this with God? We say, like, God, you can enter this part of my life, and here I really need you. But if you want to touch this, if you want to touch my marriage, get out. I'm not interested. Yes, I'll throw down the branches. Yes, I'll sing to you at church. But when it comes to you actually reigning, I get to say where you get in and where you don't. And that's essentially what the crowds are doing. The crowds are choosing a Messiah in that moment of their own making. The problem is that Messiah doesn't exist. There is no Jesus who comes only to like bow to your will. There is no Jesus like that. And so we become frustrated with Christ when he doesn't fit that mold for us. But it's not his fault. It's ours for imposing on him an identity he does not identify with. Jesus is coming as the conquering king, the Messiah coming to save us from our sins. And he doesn't want partial reign. He doesn't say, I want to reign everything except for your fears. There you can go wild in your imagination. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I want to reign everything except your finances. That you can kind of do what you will and maybe tip me every now and then. You can't buy God off with money. He doesn't need it. He doesn't say, well, you know what? I'd like to reign everything in your life except for this one private sin. That you can kind of nurture as you wish. There is no Messiah like this. So you either bow fully to the king or you have to be the king. Those are your options. And when you're the king, you might involve God some in your life, but you decide when he cuts off. That's what the crowds are about to do. And before we're too harsh on them, Isn't that exactly how we are? So today, the call to this Palm Sunday is a call to make the outward appearance, the palm branches, the crying, the singing, match the inward bowing. That's actually the need of this crowd, and Jesus sees. In fact, that's where we'll end here. We'll be brief. Jesus inspects, and there's this curious little section 
in Mark 11, uh, 11, verse 11, he says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and as he, he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went into Bethany with the twelve. Jesus inspects his temple. It starts by Jesus just carefully looking at all things. This is the same word that Mark used. He uses this five times in his gospel. It's the same word he uses in Mark chapter 5 when he describes the woman looking around, or Jesus looking around to see who touched him, carefully observing who touched me. And then it tells us that he returns to Bethany for the night. This looking around is actually a description of, um, is preparation for what Jesus is about to do. If you were to look later on in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and he curses this fig tree, and then he walks in on verse 15, and he comes, and what does he do in verse 15 through verse 19? He cleanses the temple. By describing Jesus as first walking around, and which we shouldn't picture as like a single building, like a sanctuary like this, the temple complex, you can fit multiple football fields in. It's huge. Jesus walks around, and he observes the vendors. He sees what they're doing. He sees how they're making money off the Lord's worship. He walks around and he observes the people praying. He listens to the conversations. He walks around all the outskirts and says nothing. He's inspecting. It's his temple after all. And he walks in like a Messiah on that eastern gate and simply walks around and says nothing. But by Mark telling us that he's carefully thinking through this, one commentator says it like this, what happens in the morning will then not be a spontaneous act of outrage, but a planned demonstration. When you reread Jesus clearing these temples and turning over the, the money changers, it can seem like, where is this coming from? Well, it's Mark 11, verse 11. That's where it's coming from. He's actually inspecting his temple, and he finds it wanting. He finds the people there. He's watching them, and he finds them, them not uh, engaged in the kind of activities that should be engaged in his temple. In other words, what he finds is people may be going through outward motions, but their hearts have not bowed to him. It's the same problem we're seeing in the crowds just a moment ago. Now, what I want to do is just draw our attention to four things as we end here in application. First of all, that Jesus openly declares himself as the Messiah. I've already mentioned that Mark has made great uh, points, um, has, has made great efforts to say that Mark, or Jesus doesn't want people to know that he's the Messiah. He keeps telling people, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't share this with anyone. But now Jesus is openly declaring, I am the Messiah. Jesus is deliberately tying himself to all these points in the Hebrew Scriptures, to visually tying himself to the actions of the Messiah. Just as I described that very cultural uh, sight for us of Spider-Man running around Boise, it, it would have been that plain. Oh, he's saying he's the Messiah. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. Secondly, Jesus comes primarily to bring peace with God. And you know that's still the case today? Now, gospel means what? What does the word gospel mean? Anybody know? It means good news, right? Now, do you know that anytime we're facing trials or troubles or challenges, there's always somebody proclaiming what the good news would be. Here's what I mean. You turn on one news station, and they'll tell you what the good news would look like. It's going to look like this person getting in trouble, these people getting in charge, these values being upheld. You get on the other news station, and what are they going to tell you? Here's the good news. If these people were just in power, if these people were just able to stomp down any rebellion over here, 
Everybody has a good news. The problem is we're so attuned to those um, cultural demonstrations or representations of what good news is like that often when we hear Jesus, we try to fit him into that. If you turn on the, the radio, if you watch regular news stations, if you're scrolling social media, you're getting told all the time, here's what would fix your problems. Here's the good news you need. And do you know who's almost always absent from that? God. And what we don't do is say, you know what? Those things might fix some things, but that's not our deepest need. We actually kind of follow along the outskirts of the crowd. But we're Christians, so we say, how can Jesus help do that good news? But you see what that's doing. It's actually bringing Jesus under this other gospel. I think especially today in our divided environment, we need to keep this front and center because it's so deceptive the way Satan does this to our hearts where we find ourselves taken up in our own minds and our meditations of saying, you know what would fix the world? If it was just more moral or if these people just weren't in charge or if these values just weren't promoted publicly, but that's not the biggest problem we face. I'm not saying those things wouldn't be helpful. I'm not saying I wouldn't prefer to live in this kind of a world or my country to act this kind of way. But what everyone needs is a Messiah that does this. And the last thing I want to do is take the Messiah of the universe and put him under some political agenda to make him the pawn of some TV station. And yet, that's such a challenge for us. Because just like the people of Jesus' day, that cultural milieu that cries out for help but looks in all the wrong places and doesn't recognize our biggest need, that's what we tend to do too. Really, if you were to say, you know what? If I could fix everything in six months in our country or maybe in my family or with my work, how would you describe that? Most of us would get a long list down the road before we ever even thought about God. And maybe at the end we'd say, we should pray that God will do that. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that there's no way to fix our practical needs day to day. What I'm not suggesting is that the practical kind of considerations that we face, the the hardships that we face, don't have practical ramifications or fixes. What I am suggesting is that so often Jesus is a tack-on to those and that the gospel that everyone is yelling at us, we accept wholeheartedly and then after the fact ask, how can Jesus do that? And that's what they're doing here. Jesus, though, primarily comes to bring peace with God, and that peace with God then provides peace with others. But it is in that order. Next, Jesus draws out believing faith. Jesus draws out this kind of believing faith because in that crowd there were people who soon would recognize who he truly was. But he's doing this by tying himself to these Old Testament scriptures. And finally, Jesus inspects his temple. He inspects worship. And do you know that that still happens today? Jesus can see and hear all the crying of songs. He can hear us, watch us visibly smile, but he sees inside, doesn't he? And as Christians, the Bible tells us we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He sees from the inside out on us. So this morning, if you say, you know what? I'm kind of coming to Jesus saying, hey, I'm more like these crowds than I wish I was. Right now, Jesus is inspecting his temple. And right now, Jesus is offering you to say, you know what, I'm wrong. And today, I need to actually view you as you described yourself. This on Palm Sunday of all days, we need to cry, save us now, not just with our lips, not just with our actions, not just visually, but from the heart. It's only this kind of bowing that prepares us for Easter. And that's what today has been, a preparation 
for Easter Sunday. But you can only celebrate the resurrection truly to celebrate in truth. To do that, we have to actually see Jesus for who he is. This little section in Mark 11 is an introspection on not just who Jesus is, but on our hearts towards him. And if you are like me, I think all of us can say, you know what? Too often, I'm tacking Jesus onto my life. Or really what Jesus wants is for me to bow and say, Lord, what will you have me do? Everything else follows that. So I pray that that would be our spirit as we head into worship here in just a few moments. I'm going to pray. Thank you for your great attention. I know we covered a lot in a little bit of time, um, and then uh, we'll gather together in about 10 minutes here for worship. God, as we see Jesus, as we hear him, as we can visualize this, um, this picture of outward submission, we admit that so often, even after the cross for us, we, we treat Jesus like these crowds, where we're willing to We're willing to bow to him only when he fulfills our expectations. We have all kinds of excuses. Some of them even sound very good. We even have Bible for some of them. But when it comes down to it, so often, we're not allowing you into our lives as king, as the Messiah, as the one to save us from our sins. But instead, we appropriate you just to carry out some internal desire in our own heart to maybe gain more control or um, to be looked on better by others. Lord, today I pray that we would, whole heart and whole voice, cry out, save us now, Lord, and let that be the starting point for our relationship with you. We ask all these things in Christ's name.